0: I think one of the overlooked kind of tragedies of living east of Eden in the fall is that we have this diminishing capacity for awe like things that capture our attention, and, and we have awe and wonder. They just don't last. They don't hold us. I remember w- when uh, I was a kid, maybe seven, eight years old. We were living here, and my cousins and their family were coming from Kansas, and they, they were going to come to Colorado for the first time. I just remember my cousins getting to Colorado and, and seeing the mountains and just being like, Mom, Dad, look, the mountains. This is amazing. This is great. And I was like, yeah, it's the mountains. We see them every." Day and then we went on vacation with them up in the mountains and we were camping and river. like it was a great vacation but like at every moment they're like wow amazing awesome and I, and and I just kind of would stare at them and and I, I would look at what they're looking at and I would try to make connect the dots and their their enthusiasm did help me a little bit but 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 we I just by and large we we take. Things of beauty and grandeur and glory for granted, and so um, I remember the first time I, we were on a road trip and uh, we drove out to San Diego and I saw the ocean for the same time, and I was that kid, I was like, Wow, the ocean is amazing like I was enthralled i I, I loved it, everything about it there were seashells and and all those things like i, I was I, I was like this is this is my jam, this is my place right uh, because I was new but but all the other people in San Diego were just bored with it um you know there's there there's just like kids still have this capacity to have uh, awe and wonder more than us i I think as we get older we just lose it more and more like like even going to the mall as a kid and and uh having my ratty tennis shoes on and going in the store and, and picking out a new pair of shoes remember this and uh what, what did you do? I'm like, I'm wearing them out. Like, you don't put those back in the box. I'm going to put them on right now. I'm going to run around and I'd be like, look, look at how fast my shoes make me look. And like, I believed it. And uh, like, and for a couple of days, like I, I felt that, right? I felt the, the awe and wonder of just a new pair of shoes. But now like, I'm okay. Shoes, cool, whatever. And again, we all have this, this problem. Like you can drive to the Grand Canyon and, and there will be a moment, there may be several moments, It may be a few hours where you're just like, wow, this is amazing, God is glorious. But, but it won't take long before uh, you start taking your selfies and then start getting lost in your screens and, and losing the wonder of that. And even the the self-described greatest place on earth, Disney World. If you go to Disney World, like, and, and you go to the front gate and just hang out there for, for a moment, and, and the family's coming in, you're gonna see awe and wonder. And you could tell who's been there before and who hasn't. Like, if they haven't been there before, they're really blown away by that, right? Like, th- this is amazing. And I know we got some Disney people in the front row. Um, <laughs> They're always, they, they've maintained the awe, and, and that's good. But, but you go into there, and, and they're seeing other things, and it starts to fade, it starts to fade. Well, you get a few few hours into Disney World, and I'm telling you, you're going to see some meltdowns like you've never seen in, in, in anywhere else in the world. The happiest place on earth, the greatest place on earth, the meltdown, and I'm just talking about the adults. I mean, ask me how I know. It's been to Disney World. And so what is it about just that diminishing capacity? See, the greatest tragedy, the greatest tra- tragedy, I think, for us on east of Eden is that we have this diminishing capacity for beholding the awe and the glory of God. In fact that's been the story of the book of exodus right like on repeat god is just doing amazing 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 things and the people are like whoa 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 and then they just get off track in fact this is just the story of humanity this is our story even those of us that have been rescued redeemed filled by the spirit uh like they're, they're the the every spiritual discipline its aim is to renew your awe and your wonder, and your worship once again. And so we, we, as we gather as God's people each week, it's a spiritual discipline to say, hey, I forget. I, I, I the, the world grows dim. I get distracted and I need to renew my awe. I, I need to get with the the people of God that, that have been rescued. And I need to look at them on my right and my left and be like, this image bearer has been rescued. And oh yeah, God did that. And, and I need to sing songs that rehearse the truth of, of the awe and wonder of God. And, and, and we, we, craft our whole time together just so that we might see and savor God once again. And I believe that's God's purpose for us this morning in this passage in Exodus 34. Uh, I believe God wants to stir in us uh, awe and wonder uh, of what's ultimately right, what's ultimately true. And so if you have your Bible, we're in Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, uh, it actually is uh, kind of closing out a section that began a couple weeks ago uh, with Ryan's sermon uh, in Exodus 32. And then Rick preached last week. Well, well, all the way, if you've been with us this time through the book of Exodus, uh, things have been moving along, moving along, moving along. Uh, that there was this... Uh, Covenant ceremony, I think a wedding ceremony between God and his people that he has rescued out of slavery in Egypt and just put on display his glory and majesty time and time again. And they make uh, the, the people say, We'll do it. We're all in. We're, we're, you're going to be our God. We're going to be your people. And then 32 hits, and it's like uh, the record scratch, screech. It's like a train gets derailed. Like, what happened? What happened? As, as, as Rick said last week it's like uh, adultery on the wedding night insane what happened with these people It'd be like husband and wife, a groom, bride, standing before their friends and family and God, making these commitments, and then going to their resort, going to their hotel. And, and the groom says, Hey, I'm going to go down to the lobby. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the restaurant. I'm going to get us some food. What do you want? And, and she says, Okay, I'm going to order that. I'll be back in a few. It goes down, and as he goes down and he's waiting, the, the bride begins to just get nervous. Like, Where is he? Well, what's happening? She She begins to. Peek her head out the door, like, oh, What's going on? He's just waiting in line. It's no big deal. No. And she gets more and more nervous, like, Has he abandoned me? What's going on? And she looks out, and then she sees this kind of disheveled man in rags with with unkempt beard and hair and drug addled eyes and alcohol in his breath just stumbling along. And she says, You, you're my husband come be my protector come live with me come let's, let's consummate our marriage together and she takes him into the room the husband comes up with the, the plates of food and, and looks in and sees his new bride in the arms of another how would you feel in that moment? You, you would feel betrayed. You would feel angry. You, you would feel some wrath. You, you would, at least, if you had any love for this woman at all, you, you would feel, uh, I'm out. I, I can't do this. I don't want anything to do with that. And in fact, in, in Exodus 32, this is, this is the tension of that text. It's the wedding night. God's people have already turned their back on him and adulterated themselves with a golden calf bowing down to it, saying, this is our God who saved us out of Egypt, like giving all the glory and credit to this pathetic thing. Well, in Exodus 33, last week's sermon, Rick did a a great job. Moses uh, makes some requests. Well, first God says, I'm still going to, in a sense, give, give these people grace. I'm going to send these people on to a land flowing with milk and honey, the American dream, all that they want. The only thing is, I'm not going to go. I'm going to send them on. I just won't be their God. I won't be with them because if I go with them, I I will destroy them in my holiness and my righteous wrath against sin. I'm not going to go. And Moses, in Exodus 33, begins to make uh, three bold requests. This is what we saw last week. He, he makes his first request, Lord, Lord, uh, show, me, show me your ways that I might know you. And, and, and God has this conversation with Moses, and God says, okay, Moses, I will go with you, just you and Moses boldly says no uh, for the sake of your name uh, among the nations uh, w- we need you to go w- with us lord please go with us and then then god says oh, okay i'll go with you and if you remember last week th- that that sounds good but all of a sudden you, th- there's this moment uh-oh because you're still a holy righteous god and you said if you go with us you'll you'll probably destroy us along the way so so Uh Uh-oh, we can't live without you, but we can't live with you, God. And that's where Moses makes this audacious request. Again, he says, show me your glory. He wasn't, he wasn't asking for a, a, a religious experience. He wasn't asking for a, a spiritual high, like a, a concert with lights and fog machines and lasers. He, he was asking for assurance. Like, is there anything that I can see in you, Lord, that, that might give us some confidence because we can't live with you and we can't live without you. I, I need to, to see your glory so I can have some confidence going in there. And God says, I can't, I can't show you all my glory. You would be destroyed. But here's what I'll do, Moses. Uh, I'll put you in a cleft of, a lot, of the rock. I'll, I'll cover you with my hand. And, and in a kind of anthropomorphic sense, I'll pass by. And you'll just get the, the briefest glimpse of my glory. The briefest glimpse, he says, of my goodness. And that's where we find ourselves now in Exodus 34. Moses doesn't know what's going to happen. Uh, I imagine he's still quite nervous because God has not changed and does not change. He's still holy. He still rightly judges. His people are still sinful people. And so uh, before that scene takes place, Verse 1 starts like this. I'd say, ask, I'd say, listen carefully. This is God's word. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Now immediately, this must have given Mo- Moses some hope and some confidence. Oh, God's not going to destroy us. Hey, he's going to rewrite the law. He's going to rewrite the law in, the, in, in these tablets that he's going to have me chisel out. So, so he's got some a little bit of hope and confidence. Verse two, be ready in the morning, and then come up the mountain come out Mount, come up Mount Sinai, present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks or herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. So again, Moses has been up this mountain many times. But he never takes it for granted. Because when he goes up this mountain, God shows up. When he goes up this mountain, he has encounters with the Holy One, the creator of all things. And so it's with fear and trembling and with hope and confidence that he makes his way up this mountain. He knows that he's going to to see something that he has up until this point not seen. And considering all the things that Moses has seen and all the conversations that he's had with God, that is saying something that he's going to have this encounter. So, verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the, cl- in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. Now, now, back in chapter 33, he gave Moses a hint of what was going to happen. He says, I will cause my goodness, uh, in verse 19 of chapter 33, I, I will cause my, cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Now, you may remember from Exodus 3, the Lord, all caps, is the divine, holy name of God. We usually don't say it, but in context, we, we will say it. Yahweh, proclaim my name, Yahweh. And and verse 6, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, Hayah, Asher, Hayah. I am that I am. It is an intentional echo of Exodus 3, when God appeared to Moses and first told Moses his name. I am that I am. That means I I am who I was, who I am, who I will ever be. I am unchanging, always the same. And, And now God is going to give the greatest self-revelation to his people that has ever been given up until this point at least and in fact these verses for the next 1500 years if you were to ask a Jewish person what is God like they would say look at Exodus 34 6 and 7 you want to know who God is? 34, 6, and 7. And, and it's real interesting because in kind of modern culture or, or, or ideas about God, there, there's this idea that the God of the Old Testament is somehow capricious, somehow um, uh, vengeful, uh, had, had to grow up, had to chill out a little bit and come into the New Testament. And then he was gentle and nice and, and nothing could be further from the truth. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is how God self-describes. Now, the, these adjectives and these adjectives verbal phrases Uh, each one of them in and of themselves would be enough to fuel our prayers uh, fuel our worship they'd be enough to um, sustain us and give us awe but combined it is a staggering picture of who this God is verse 6 and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming I am that I am the compassionate and gracious God that's the first thing he says is that what you expected when his people, his bride, had just adulterated themselves. And the first thing he says, I'm compassionate and I'm gracious. This is my character. It speaks of emotional uh, resonance with his people. It is the same words that that, uh, are used of, of a mother's love for a child. It's innate. I have, I'm in tune with my, my child's needs. I have compassion and grace for my children. I'm the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger. Literally in the Hebrew, it translates long of nose, which apparently is a Hebrew idiom for patient. Slow to anger, like a, like a, a kind old grandpa with a long nose, just very patient. This God is not like us. He does not have a short temper. He doesn't lose it. He is a God who uh, deals justly with, with sin, but He is a God who is uh, uh, slow to anger. He gives us a, a lot of time to see our, the error of our ways and to repent and turn back to Him. And this is good news for people that need to repent and turn back to him. So he's compassionate, he's gracious, he's slow to anger. And then it says, abounding, overflowing in love and faithfulness. And here here again, in our modern English, the the words do not do justice for what is actually being communicated there. This is a word pair that gets paired throughout the Old Testament, love and faithfulness, but but it's more than what you're thinking right now. The word for love here is chesed. It is God's covenantal love. It's the love of a greater to a lesser. It's a love that's unstoppable, unbreakable. It's a love that is, is, is going to accomplish all of its purposes it's a covenantal love and faithfulness emit it's a word for truth it is i am faithful i you may be faithless but i I will be faithful i will love you with chesed love and faithfulness it's and not only that it's abounding it's overflowing uh in, in the new testament these words would be translated grace and truth in all of their theological richness. This is who God is, maintaining love to thousands. This is what God puts on display. This is the forefront. You want to know who I am? Look at verse 6. I am all these things. He says, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. For, he's a forgiving God of wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's a, a comprehensive uh, uh, for, forgiveness now, now you might be thinking you, you could go one or two ways with this kind of the, the modern idea of just flattening everything flattening God, flattening our, our sin all that, you, you might be thinking uh, when you read that, just kind of assume that maybe, maybe you're not blown, blown away by what God is describing because we have this diminishing capacity of awe but, but you might be thinking uh, of course God is a forgiving God that's kind of his job what's the big deal but that, that might be what you're thinking. You might be thinking, and after all, why are we even really talking about sin? That's kind of an outdated idea. Like, should like let's, let's just leave that off. Let's talk about compassion and love and mercy. Like, well, we even don't even need mercy because, you know, it's God's good, we're good. You know, I do some things wrong, but after all, it's not that wrong. So, so that's one way you might be thinking about this when you hear that he is a forgiving God. Or, or you might be thinking, but but he's a holy God. He's a righteous God. How can he forgive when, when he is a God who is holy and just and righteous and, and sin can't be in his presence and, and all these things? You might, you might be thinking that. You might know, just be honest with yourself. I have, I have rebelled against this holy God. And so how can, how can Exodus 34, 6 and 7 just say that? Well, well, the next verse kind of leans into this tension. The next part of the verse says, Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. It's like there's an intentional tension here. On the one hand, God is forgiving. On the other hand, yet He doesn't la- let the guilty go unpunished. And newsflash, we're all the guilty. So which is it? So do, do we have forgiveness in God and, and in the character and nature? Or, or does He not let the guilty go unpunished? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll dig into that in, in just a few moments. But what what I want you to see, first and foremost, is what Moses clearly sees. Moses sees what God puts on the foreground foreground and, and what God puts on the background. On the foreground is this overwhelming description of compassion and grace and slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love for thousands and forgiving. This is what Moses sees, and he knows that God judges sin. He just doesn't know how those things work out together. But his response is the right response. Verse 8, Moses bowed to the ground and worshipped. Moses bowed to the ground and worshipped. So Something in the, the glimpse. Notice, this is the moment that, that is f- the fulfillment of chapter 33. But but there's no description of of the hiding in the cleft or seeing the backside. There, there's no visual description. It's all about who God says He is. And, and if God has... has hold back the veil just a little bit and you see who God is and you see who you are and you see these things to be true, the only right and good natural response is to get on your face and to worship God. Verse 9, he, in light of this amazing revelation, in light of who God just said he is, Moses has one more audacious, ridiculous request. He he would have never requested this if it wasn't for what God had just shown him. Now, we're going to have to unpack it a little bit, but I want you to see how crazy this request is. In verse 9, Lord, he said, from the ground face down in worship on the mountain, if I have found favor in your eyes then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Now, now let me explain why this is such a crazy, crazy, crazy request. So, so when it says, although, this is a stiff-necked people, that, that word although, it actually should be, it's, it's the Hebrew word kai, it should be, it should be translated because. So, so Moses is saying, go with us, and, and because this is a stiff-necked people, because they are sinful, they do sin, and because, God, they're going to continue to sin, will you forgive our wickedness? Now now what's important here is is the word forgive. There are three Hebrew words for forgiveness in the Old Testament. There's kapur, it means to cover sin. It, it points to sacrifice, being covered by the blood of the lamb, for example. Kapur. There's smuh, which means to pardon or to forgive a debt. So kapur, smuh, to forgive a debt, that also points to substitution, it points to sacrificial system. But those aren't the words that are used here in Exodus 34. This is what absolutely blew me away this week. This is what blows me away about Moses' request. The word that that God uses of his forgiveness and that Moses appeals to is nis. N-S. Nis. It means to carry or bear away. To lift up and bear away. Moses, what he's saying is, because these are a sinful people... And because you are a holy God that by no means lets the guilty go unpunished. And, be, and, and I don't know how you're going to work this out, but, uh, but I'm holding on to that word that, that you, God, lift up sin and you put it on your own shoulders and you carry it away. God, the Holy One of Israel, w- would you with these people for their sin in their past, the sin in their present, and the sin that they're going to commit in the future, will you... Will you carry all that? will you put that on yourself, God, so that you won 't destroy us as we go into the land? Will you, the holy One, just 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 pile that on every time we sin, every time we we go after adultery and, and idolatry and uh, greed and lust and and all those things every time can we just pile that onto your back, God, and will you carry it as we walk into the future? It is. A crazy, crazy request. And Moses doesn't really know how this is going to work out. He's got some hints of it. He knows that, that that there's there's a sacrifice, a substitute that can happen. And Moses is like, can you somehow, God, be our substitute? Is that is that too bold of a request of a holy God to carry our sins? He doesn't know. This is why... Paul will, will talk about this scene in, in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 and, and talk about how the glory that Moses saw was just veiled glory. It was dim glory. He, he only had a hint, but we have more. Th- these verses, Exodus 34, and uh, verse 6 and 7, become the most quoted verses in the rest of the Old Testament the prophets, the leaders, the psalmists, they're going to constantly point back. You want to know who God is like? Go, go, go back to Exodus 34. Let me just read one section of one psalm that, that does this. Psalm 103, uh, verse 7, he says, he made, his ways, he made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. That's verse 10. Amen? Listen, if verse 10 isn't true, none of us, uh, none of us would be here today. I wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be here. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. iniquities. Why? Because He he forgives us. He carries us. He says, oh, your sin? Let me take that on me. And they're just blown away by this. Like they don't understand. They can't understand. But they're constantly pointing to to these verses well we can understand we can know because the embodiment of of exodus 34 6 and 7 comes in the person of jesus god taking on flesh to carry our sins in fact this is how john describes think of exodus 34 and now reread john chapter 1 in light of exodus 34 he starts his gospel saying in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god down in verse 14 <clears throat> the word became flesh made his dwelling among us we saw that his tabernacle among us we have seen his glory The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth chesed and emit. There's an echo here. You want to know what Exodus 34 looks like in person? Look to Jesus. Verse 17, For the law was given to Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Chesed and emit. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who himself is God is in closest relationship with the father. He has made him known. So the tension of Exodus 34, I'm a forgiving God. By no means I acquit the guilty. The tension is all resolved in Jesus Christ. He is the one who says, I'll carry your sin. I'll put it on my, on my back. I'll live the life that you and I can never live. I'll step down from my throne in glory and live among these people. I'll live a perfect sinless life. No, nothing should go into my account, but I'll take everything into my account. And he begins to just stack it on him more and more so, so that on the night that he is betrayed, he's in the garden of Gethsemane. And what's he doing? He's praying to the father father my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death he's 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 starting to feel the weight of your sin my sin every little one and every big one and and all the sins of the world starting to press down on him he says my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death father if it is possible take this cup from me but nevertheless not my will but your will be done And the father doesn't take the cup from him. He's arrested in the garden. He goes to a a mockery of a trial. He's tortured. He's abused. And then he's thrust a a heavy wooden beam on his back and told to carry it up to the skull, the place of the skull, Golgotha. He's carrying the sins of the people on his back. The physical torture was brutal, but it is nothing, nothing compared to what Jesus is going through as he makes his way to the cross. And as they lay him down and the Roman soldiers begin to drive thick seven inch iron spikes through his wrists and through his ankles, in that moment as he's screaming out in pain, Luke tells us he screams out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's as if if Jesus is saying, I'm carrying all the sins of the world away to forgive them, and it's crushing me, it's destroying me, it's going to tear me apart. But Father, put put even these sins on my back now. Even the ones that are crucified, I'll carry that as well. I mean, isn't this a good God? And he goes and he, and, and, and he is forsaken by the Father where his righteous and good and holy wrath, wrath against sin because he by no means will let the guilty go unpunished. He takes that and he pours it on his son. Exodus 34 is embodied in the person and the work of Jesus. This is why Paul is adamant. Moses saw dimly. We see clearly the glory of God. And so our role now as, as believers, forgiven, have, having had our sins carried away from us to the cross, our role is just to simply renew our minds and our hearts to look to Jesus, to see and behold His glory, and to live out of that. So what does this glory look like? Well, look to Jesus, taking on flesh to live the life you could never live, Look to Jesus paying the price you and I deserve to pay. Look to Jesus piling up your sin and your shame, carrying it to the cross. Look to Jesus receiving the full wrath of God against sin in Himself. Look to Jesus being forsaken by the Father so that you will never, ever, ever, ever be forsaken. Look to Jesus who has purchased you by His blood and satisfied the full penalty of your payment of your penalty. Look to Jesus who died and was wrapped in a cloth and laid in the tomb. Look to Jesus who would not let death in the grave, keep him down and have the last word. Look to Jesus who rose again on the third day. Look to Jesus who is fully alive. Look to Jesus who ascended to the right hand of the Father. Look to Jesus who is right now, right now, is advocating for you before the throne. He's both our judge and our defender. He's saying we'll never pay the penalty of all of our sins because the debt has already been paid in full. Look to Jesus who has sent his Holy Spirit to live in us and through us and has written his law on our hearts. Look to Jesus Jesus who has been given all power and authority in heaven and on earth and has invited us to life of purpose and mission with him. Look to Jesus who is coming again. Jesus, Paul says in Colossians, when Christ appears, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is our story. This is our glory. No wonder they call it gospel good news. Amen. Let's look to Jesus now in faith as we come to this table and in faith as we sing these songs, in faith as we pray these prayers, in faith as we give for His glory and His renown. Let me pray. Father, thank You for Your Word to us this morning. Lord, we have taken for granted Your amazing grace this week. And Lord, we will sin against You again this next week. And like Moses We ask you to carry it away and renew our hearts to what's true and right in the gospel. Stir in us in awe and let us respond rightly as Moses responded when you revealed your glory to him in worship. So be glorified in our lives and in this church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.